you've got your Bibles, and I hope that you do, please turn in them to Genesis chapter 31. We're back in Genesis this morning. Chapter 31. We've all seen the images of Secret Service agents. They're, um, they readily come to mind. We see them doing what is probably their primary responsibility, which is protecting key VIPs within our government, and most notably, the President of the United States. We see them with their dark suits, their dark sunglasses, their microphones in their cuffs, or whatever it is that they're talking to down there, right? Ever watchful, ever vigilant, never dozing off, always very aware and watchful and protective of their charge, the person that they're assigned to protect. They're always there. You don't always see them, but they're always there. That's why they're called the Secret Service. Sometimes you don't even see them, but they're there. They're always within eyesight of their charge. It reminds us of the story in 2 Kings chapter 6, where the Syrians are coming against Elisha with a vast army. And Elisha's servant is next to him, and he's fearful, and understandably so, of this vast army that is approaching. And so Elisha tells him in 2 Kings 6, verses 16 through 17, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than, the, are more than those who are with them. And I'm sure in the moment the servant was like, with us? It's just you and me, Elisha. The Lord, and then we're told in the next verse, then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. There was an army of secret protection around Elisha and the servant that he wasn't even aware of, just as sometimes the VIPs either ignore or aren't even aware of the secret service that are around them. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8, if God is for us, who can be against us? And then he asks another rhetorical question towards the end of Romans chapter 8 when he says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? He goes on to ask, shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword It's a rhetorical question. The assumed answer is no, they shall not. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither life nor death, nor angels nor demons, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is a particular promise for a particular people from a particular God who is with us and who is for us. A God who promises to protect his children even if you die because if we do, We have the promise of the resurrection that we will be with him in eternity. That's a a kind of protection that is unassailable. That's a kind of sovereign and divine protection that makes us as if we are untouchable. Sovereign protection and guidance from God. This is what we see on display in this chapter of Genesis, Genesis chapter 31. God is protecting Jacob. God is protecting and he is guiding his people. He's protecting and preserving his promise here in this chapter. Now, we've been out of Genesis for a number of weeks. Uh, We took a few weeks off to take a look at what does the gospel have to say, what does the scripture have to say about race and what we're going through as a country. And we also took last week to hear from one of our missionaries and consider our role in holding the rope for our missionaries that we have the privilege of sending out. 
So since we've been away from the book of Genesis, away from this narrative, it's as if we've hit pause on our DVR, right? Do we have DVRs anymore? Do we even use those again? But we've hit pause on our DVR, and now we're ready to hit play. So let me catch us up briefly, uh, if you'll indulge me for just a few moments, so we can understand the setting for this chapter. So you'll recall that we're in the middle of the story of Jacob. Jacob, who is the son of Isaac. He is the grandson of the patriarch, Father Abraham. He was born as the younger of two twins, or one set of twins. His brother Esau came out first, and then Jacob came out grabbing his heel, grabbing his brother's heel. That's why it's called Jacob. Jacob means heel grabber. That's what that, that name means, heel grabber. It's a euphemism, by the way, for supplanter or deceiver. And it didn't take but a few years for Jacob to live up to that namesake twice. First, he demands that his brother sell him his birthright, which, oddly, Esau does. He gets hungry, and so he sells his birthright for a bowl of soup. And then several years later, Jacob deceives his father into thinking that he is actually his twin brother Esau. He puts on a hairy costume, because Esau was hairy, and so he puts on this hairy costume to pretend like he is Esau, and lo and behold, it works. Isaac, who doesn't see well, feels the hair, thinks it's Esau, and so he, he gives Jacob the blessing of the firstborn instead of Esau. And so now Jacob not only has Esau's birthright, but he has stolen his blessing, the blessing of the firstborn son. Esau is obviously not, not very happy about this. We're told that he hates his brother, his twin brother Jacob, because of this. And he makes plans to murder his brother after his father passes away. And so Jacob flees. Jacob runs away from Canaan. At the advice of his mother, he flees to Haran. Not just to flee away from Esau, but also partly to find a wife. And so he ends up in the land of his forefathers where his grandfather came from, where his mother, Rebecca, came from, meets up with Rebecca's family, Rebecca's brother, Laban, his uncle, Laban. Laban has two daughters. And Jacob falls in love with the younger one, Rachel. Falls in love with her and, and wants to marry her. And Uncle Laban says, okay, but not for free. you got to work for me for seven years. And so after seven years, he says, it's time for me to marry Rachel. And so they have this big party, and Laban deceives him. And instead of bringing Rachel to him, he brings his older daughter, Leah, to him. And Jacob and Leah are married. He deceives Jacob in that. But Jacob really loves Rachel and still wants to marry Rachel. And so Laban comes up with a plan, and he says, all right, you can still marry her as long as you agree to work seven more years for me. And of course, Jacob desperately loves Rachel and agrees to do that. And so after 14 years of free labor, as we saw in chapter 30 previously, the last time we were in this book, after 14 years of free labor, Jacob's ready to go home. Jacob's ready to go back to Canaan. But Laban prevails upon him to stay. Keep pasturing my flock. Keep shepherding my flock. And he says, I know you've worked for me for free for 14 years, but now name your wages. Name your wages, whatever they are, if you'll just stay and shepherd my flock. Because Laban had done quite well under Jacob taking care of his flocks. And so Jacob says, listen, I don't need any wages. Don't give me any wages. Just let me go through the flock and all of the flock that is spotted or striped or mottled or whatever, just they've got the spots and the stripes on them, then they'll be a part of my flock. And then we'll know what's your flock and what's my flock, and those will be my wages. Those sheep and those goats will be my wages. And Laban agrees to this, but then he deceptively, he sends his servants into the flock, and he begins to take some of the male goats and some of the male sheep who are spotted and striped, enriching himself and disadvantaging Jacob in the ensuing years. But Jacob, in this weird part of chapter 30 that Pastor Matt did a great job with when we were last here, he comes up with this far-fetched idea to, uh, it was probably based, uh, he's probably right, probably based on superstition, uh, 
that as long as the sheep and the goats during mating season, during mating season, if they see spots and stripes and speckles on trees and and sticks that he puts in front of them, then the offspring from those sheep and goats will likewise be spotted and striped. I don't know. It was a superstition at the time. But the crazy thing is, it worked. It worked. And by the way, we're going to find out in chapter 31, we're going to find out why it worked. We're going to find out what was happening there. And as a result of this, Jacob's wealth over the next six years explodes. And, and we find him at the end of chapter 30 with vast flocks of sheep and goats. He's quite wealthy. But now it's time to go. And so now we pick up the story in chapter 31. We're going to read just the first 21 verses of chapter 31. Now Jacob heard that the sons of Laban were saying, Jacob has taken all that was our father's, and from what was our father's, he has gained all this wealth. And Jacob saw that Laban did not regard him with favor as before. Then the Lord said to Jacob, Return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I will be with you. So Jacob sent and called Rachel and Leah into the field where his flock was, and said to them, I see that your father does not regard me with favor as he did before. But the God of my father has been with me. You know that I have served your father with all my strength. Yet your father has cheated me and changed my wages ten times. But God did not permit him to harm me. If he said, the spotted shall be your wages, then all the flock were spotted. And if he said, the striped shall be your wages, then all the flock bore striped. Thus God has taken away the livestock of your father and given them to me. In the breeding season of the flock, I lifted up my eyes and saw in a dream that the goats that mated with the flock were striped, spotted, and mottled. Then the angel of God said to me in the dream, Jacob, and I said, here I am. And he said, lift up your eyes and see all the goats that mate with the flock are striped, spotted, and mottled. For I have seen all that Laban is doing to you. I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me. Now arise. Go out from this land and return to the land of your kindred. Then Rachel and Leah answered and said to him, Is there any portion or inheritance left to us in our father's house? Are we not regarded by him as foreigners? For he has sold us, and he has indeed devoured our money. All the wealth that God has taken away from our father belongs to us and to our children. Now then, whatever God has said to you, do. So Jacob arose and set his sons and his wives on camels. He drove away all his livestock, all his property that he had gained, the livestock in his possession that he had acquired in Paddan Aram, to go to the land of Canaan to his father Isaac. Laban had gone to shear his sheep, and Rachel stole her father's household gods. And Jacob tricked Laban the Aramean by not telling him that he intended to flee. He fled with all that he had and arose and crossed the Euphrates and set his face toward the hill country of Gilead. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the privilege this morning of gathering together and hearing from you and your word. We thank you so much that that we have this book that we hold in our hands. Lord, we thank you so much for preserving it throughout the ages so that we can know that what we hold in our hands is not just a book, but is the very word of God very breath of God. And so we thank you for it, Father, and we, we ask that you would attend to the reading and the exposition of your word with understanding. Pray, Father, for a spirit of interpretation among the people, your people, and God, that you would use your word this morning, here, downstairs, in homes, wherever our people are, Lord, that you would use your word, even as we begin to dive into it, to bring about spiritual fruit for your glory. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we didn't read all of chapter 31, but chapter 31 divides, in my estimation, up to, into two major sections. One that we just read through where, where Jacob is told now to leave Paddan Aram and go back to Canaan and the circumstances surrounding that. But then the rest of the chapter, Lord willing, that we'll be able to cover next week is where Laban finds out that he's left and pursues after him and meets up with him, and they have this huge conflict in the hill country of Gilead. 
So we'll cover that next week. This morning we're just going to cover the first 21 verses, which can be further divided up into four distinct parts. First of all, in verses 1 through 3, this is where... This is where Jacob gets his reasons, two or three different reasons, for leaving Padanaram and going to Canaan, going back to Canaan. And then he gathers his wives together in verses 4 through 16, which is the, uh, 4 through 13, excuse me, which is the largest section. It's one of two speeches by Jacob in chapter 31. The other one is his speech to Laban that we'll cover next week. But this one is where he gathers his wives together and he tries to convince them to leave all that they know and go back with him to Canaan. And he gives the reasons for doing so. Then in the third section, in verses 14 through 16, is their reply to him. Their response to his reasoning for why they should leave their homeland and go with him back to Canaan. And then the last section, verses 17 through 21, is where Jacob secretly steals away and leaves, flees away from Laban uh, along with his wives and his flocks. So let's look at that first section first, where in the first three verses, Jacob is presented with a couple of reasons for leaving Paddan Aram. And the first is what we might call antagonism from his family. Antagonism from his family. Or we might even say animosity. I mean, there's been a turn in the attitude of Laban and his family towards Jacob. And it's, it's very clear. Look at verse 1. Now Jacob heard that the sons of Laban were saying, Jacob has taken all that was our father's, and from what was our father's he has gained all this wealth. You know, they say a half-truth is just a whole lie. This is hugely fake news, right? So, so did Jacob take all that was their father's? He certainly got rich from their father under his employ. He, he, he became very wealthy, but he didn't steal anything. He didn't take anything away from Laban. This was certainly a, just a result of him operating under the circumstances in which they set up the contract. Uh, but his sons, Laban's sons, are going around spreading this rumor that Jacob stole from their father. And they're angry about that. They're upset about that. And rumor is beginning to spread about that, that he's stolen from them. But we also see the animosity of Laban himself. Look at verse 2. And Jacob saw that Laban did not regard him with favor as before. That, that phrase in the Hebrew literally means Laban's face was not with Jacob as it was before. Laban's face was not with him. He, he didn't have the same kind of regard with him. He started out as his nephew. You know, he showed up as his nephew. And then he married his daughters. He became like a son. He became a son-in-law. Laban became as, as if his own father there in Padanaram. But over time, that relationship devolved into kind of just a business relationship. And then that really devolved into more of kind of an indentured servant kind of relationship. To the point where now, as a result of Jacob gaining great wealth as a result of this relationship, Laban considers him even his own enemy. There's no more any love loss between them anymore. And so things have changed. Things have changed between Laban and Jacob now. But the real kicker here for Jacob is what happens next in verse 3. We're told, Then the Lord said to Jacob, Return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I will be with you. So it wasn't just the reason of animosity of family. It was fundamentally, it was the divine call and God's divine promise of protection at which he pulled the trigger to leave Paddan Aram and go back to Canaan. The Lord speaks to him, return, return to the land of your fathers and your kindred, and I will be with you. And those words should recall to us the dream that, that Jacob had when he went to Bethel, when he was on the way from Canaan to Haran to find a wife, fleeing from Esau, he stopped over in Bethel. He's lying there on a rock, and God shows up to him in a dream. He says, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to, I'm going to cause your offspring to be as numerous as the stars. They will spread out to the east and the west and the north and the south. 
and he promised to be with him. So wherever you go, I will be with you, and I will not leave you until I have accomplished everything that I have promised. And so he makes this promise to him, and now in chapter 31, now the Lord says to him, now it's time. Now it's time to come back. It's time to go back to Canaan. You know, I think it's possible here, parenthetically, that Jacob had become so wealthy there in Paddan Aram, life had become so comfortable to him, that perhaps at this point he had lost some of his desire to return to Canaan. You know, in, in chapter 30, around the midway point of chapter 30, he had finished his 14 years and he's like, uh, Laban, I'm ready to go. I'm ready to go. He had worked for 14 years for him and he didn't have a dime to show for it. He had nothing to show for it except for two wives. He didn't have any flocks. He didn't have any of that. He had been working for him for free for 14 years and he wanted to go home. But Laban prevailed upon him to stay and keep shepherding his flock, not out of altruistic motives that he loved his son-in-law and wanted him to stay, but because he had gotten rich because Jacob had been doing a good job watching over his sheep. But as we recalled in our summary just a few moments ago, instead of accepting wages, Jacob proposed this contract with Laban regarding the flock. And he devised this plan that was, again, probably based on superstition or some kind of incredibly smart selective breeding strategy uh, whereby the, the stronger of the flock became his. And, and, and where over time, over the next six years, his wealth just exploded as Laban's began to dwindle. And so now he finds himself at the end of six years quite comfortable and quite wealthy. And perhaps he was hesitant to return to Canaan, which was God's original plan for him to go there, find a wife, and come back. Perhaps he needed what Ligon Duncan calls a divine shove. (laughs) A divine shove to leave what was comfortable, to leave what was what he knew what was comfortable to him and to step out in faith and to do what God was calling him to do and God used some circumstances in his life uh, his brother-in-laws Laban's sons are now spreading rumors all throughout the city about him stealing from their father Laban's face was no longer with him that relationship had soured and it caused all kinds of problems for him but now most importantly This God with whom he had set up a pillar and an altar at Bethel, this God had now appeared to him again in a dream and said, now it's time to go. It's time to leave. It's time to move out from what is comfortable. And he gave him the divine shove that he needed to both see and obey God's plan to return to Canaan. You know, sometimes we can get comfortable with our life here. And the siren song of comfort and ease and leisure and wealth woos us to remain where it is comfortable. And sometimes we need also a divine shove to leave our comfort zone and to re-engage with God's plans for us, his purposes and his mission for us in this world. Think about the Israelites who were wandering in the wilderness. They needed a divine shove to leave Egypt. They had grown comfortable, oddly enough, with life as slavery in Egypt. Their divine shove was Moses and the plagues. But then as they're wandering in the wilderness, listening to the story, reading the story from Moses, as they're wandering in that wilderness, they were at risk for growing comfortable with life in the wilderness. I think this is part of why God gave manna from heaven, just enough for today. Not enough to store up for tomorrow, because he'll bring it tomorrow as well. Because he didn't want them to be comfortable with living in the wilderness. And they would be encouraged by this story out of Genesis chapter 31 to keep following Yahweh, keep trusting him, keep following after him. This God who had told them to leave Egypt and embark on this long and dangerous journey on the way to go back to the promised land, which, by the way, is exactly exactly what Jacob is being told by God to do, to leave what is comfortable and to go out on this long and dangerous journey back to the promised land and trust him 
that he would be with them every step of the way. You know, for us, it's easy for us to think that this is the promised land. It's easy for us to get lulled into that false sense of this is where it's at. But it's not. We know that. But sometimes we fall into that. And we need that divine shove to make us realize that. God sometimes uses circumstances to do this, but he always uses the special revelation of his word. His word where he speaks to us like he spoke to Jacob here. He speaks to us in his word to move from what is comfortable and easy to what is difficult, sometimes scary, sometimes challenging, but altogether ultimately rewarding because it is his plan for us and his mission for us. And so now Jacob is ready. He's ready to obey God. He's got the reasons in play. He's ready to step out in faith and begin this journey back to God. But now comes the hard part, convincing not one but two wives to go with him back to Canaan. Again, parenthetically, the Bible never condones or commends uh, polygamy. Here uh, with Jacob, as well as the other patriarchs, they violated God's plan in multiple wives. Jacob was tricked into this. Um, but here he finds himself with two wives, and he's got to convince not one but two wives to leave Penanaram, to leave, think about it, to leave all that they know. This was their homeland. They, they didn't know anything else. They didn't know anything about Canaan. They certainly didn't know anybody in Canaan except for, except for Jacob himself. And so his job now is to convince them to leave everything that they know, all that they're comfortable with, they're, they're leaving Paddan Aram is, is similar to when God called Abraham out of Haran to go to a land that I will show you because they don't know anything about the land that Jacob is taking them to. So how's he going to, you know, if we know anything about Jacob up to this point, we would think that maybe he would come up with some kind of conniving trick, right? Some, some kind of uh, deception to, to deceive them into going back to Canaan with them. But we're beginning to see a different Jacob in chapter 31. Jacob seems to be maturing here. He's, he's beginning to grow in his faith. The lessons of faith that God has led him through in his life, some of them are beginning to sink in, and we begin to see some of the spiritual fruit of a journey of faith in Jacob's life here. We even see him beginning to show some spiritual leadership in the home and in, and in his marriage in this chapter. And so Jacob is very different here than the stories that we've seen of Jacob up to this point in large part. He's beginning to earn a new name, a name that God will bestow on him in the next chapter, the name of Israel, the namesake for God's chosen nation. So then we move on to the second section where Jacob now gathers his wives together and he tries to convince them to leave Paddan Aram and go to Canaan. And we see there in verse 4 where he calls Rachel and Leah to himself out into the field where nobody's going to hear them. And he begins to explain to them reasons, four reasons in particular, why they should consider leaving everything that they know and love and every person that they know and love and their, their father's homeland and go with him to a land that they don't know and to people that they don't know. The first reason is because Laban is against me, Jacob says, but God is with me. Laban is against me, but God is with me. Look at verse 5. He gathers them and he says to them, I see that your father does not regard me with favor as he did before, but the God of my father has been with me. So again, literally, your, your father's face is no longer with me. But Yahweh is. God is with me. And he's been with me all along. So, so he's, he's speaking to his wives here, and he's trying to convince them. Listen, your, your, dad, your dad is not with us anymore. He, he's not for us. But the God of my fathers is. He's with us. And, and, and so we, we begin to see Jacob not just begging for them to come home with him. He's, he's teaching them about the providence of God. He's teaching them about the sovereignty of God as he begins to disciple his wives who were born and raised in a polytheistic culture. He's beginning to teach them about Yahweh. Laban is against me. He's no longer with me, but God is. 
He is with me. Secondly, Laban cheated me, but God did not allow him to harm me. Look at verses 6 and 7. He says, but um, verse 6, You know that I have served your father with all my strength, yet your father has cheated me and changed my wages ten times, but God did me. So he's trying to convince them that he's justified in leaving. And he, he says, even though I worked for your father with integrity and faithfulness, I, I worked for him with all my strength. I gave him everything that I had. I worked for him honestly. But your father repaid my hard work with treachery and deception, and he changed my wages ten different times. It was unfair, and so I am, I'm justified in leaving him, and so are you. The third reason, Laban changed my wages, but God changed my flock. He says in verse 8, I love this. If Laban said the spotted shall be your wages, guess what? All the flock was spotted. And then Laban said, no, I don't want that. I want to have more for me. I want to cheat Jacob more. And so now I'm going to change your wages. Now, now all the stripes shall be your wages. And so now all they had was striped goats and sheeps. I love it. And then verse 9. The first two words of verse 9 are critical. Thus God. Thus God. In this manner, in this way, God has taken away the livestock from your father and has given them to me. See, back in chapter 30, we don't know what the reason was for why he was doing this. It was some kind of superstition, some, some, some kind of you know, weird animal husbandry thing that he came up with about stripping the bark off the trees and the, and the sticks and, and they'll see that stuff and, and, and all this will happen. And so, and so we, gave, we gave the credit to superstition and all that, but, but here Jacob is clear and, and, and unavoidably giving all the credit to God. See, so God is the one who did this. And, and in the moment, I may have been acting out of superstition, but it is clear that God is the one who did that. Thus, God took away from your father. Rachel, Leah, don't you see what has been happening here? Yahweh took away from your father and he has given to us because he's with us and he always has been and he always will be. Jacob here is, is contrasting. He's not contrasting their father with himself. He's contrasting their father with Yahweh, with God. You, you, you see your father. Now look at Yahweh. Look at the Lord. He is trustworthy he is faithful. He is good. He is fair. And he doesn't leave you. He doesn't abandon you like your father has done for you. Ultimately, Jacob here is teaching his wives about the sovereignty of God, about the character of God, about the providence of God. And then there's a fourth reason that Jacob gives them. And it's the one that carries all the weight that Jacob's God, who had been with him all along, who had prospered him by miraculously basically giving him the majority of the flock, this God has now spoken to Jacob and told him it's time to go home to Canaan. Look at verses 10 through 13. In the breeding season of the flock, I lifted up my eyes and saw in a dream that the goats that mated with the flock were striped, spotted, and mottled. Then the angel of God said to me in the dream, Jacob. And I said, here I am. And he said, lift up your eyes and see. All the goats that mate with the flock are striped, spotted, and mottled. For I have seen all that Laban is doing to you. I am the God of Bethel where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me. Now arise, go out from this land and return to the land of your kindred. And so Jacob is speaking with his wives and he recounts this dream for them where God showed up to him. 
And in this dream, God reminded Jacob that, that he had been with him the whole time. And that he had seen all that Laban had done to him. Now let that statement sink in for just a moment. I have seen, God says to Jacob, I've seen all that Laban has done to you. I haven't been sleeping. I haven't missed a thing. I've seen it all. And, and, and that's the reason why I've taken from their father and given to you. Like the greatest secret service agent in the world, he's always awake. He's ever watchful. He's never sleeping. He never dozes off. And he sees everything that happens to us. He sees everything that happens to you, church. And he's sympathetic and compassionate. And here we see it with Jacob. I have seen all that Laban has done to you. I've seen it. And that's why I've prospered you. That's why I've taken from him and given to you. God also reveals himself, himself in this dream as the God of Bethel. That's, the, that's the, the word, the name that he uses for himself. I am the God of Bethel, which of course recalls us to chapter 28. As Jacob's on his way to Haran to find a wife and he stops over in Bethel and he goes to sleep on a rock and God shows up to him in that miraculous way and, and profoundly promises to be with him forever. And God reminds him in this dream that not only did I promise to be with you, but you made a vow to me as well. You made a vow to me at Bethel that you'd follow me, that you'd be my servant that I would be your God and you would follow me. Now this God is telling him, it's time to leave. It's time to pack up. It's time to go back to Canaan. And so that's what he's telling Rachel and Leah. Rachel and Leah, this, this God who is the God of my fathers, this God who has prospered me while I'm here through this miraculous means this, this God who showed up to me in, in Bethel and promised to be with me, and he has been every step of the way. I, I made a vow to this God to follow him and obey him. This God has now said it's time to go back to Canaan. Jacob's not just giving Rachel and Leah a rationale for leaving their homeland to accompany him back to Canaan. He has is, he is given them a reason to trust God. And recounting the trustworthiness and faithfulness of God so that they would learn and follow him as well. And so, are they persuaded? Are they persuaded to go with him? Look at their response in verses 14 through 16. Then Rachel and Leah answered and said to him, Is there any portion or inheritance left to us in our father's house? Are we not regarded by him as foreigners? For he has sold us. This is his daughters. He has sold us. And he has indeed devoured our money. And all the wealth that God has taken away from our father belongs to us and to our children. Now then, whatever God has said to you, do. So they're not too happy with dad. Is there, anything, is there anything left? Is there an inheritance left for us? It's a rhetorical question. The assumed answer is no, there's not. There's nothing left. There's nothing left for them. Our Father regards us as foreigners, as strangers, as aliens, as of no relation to Him any longer. There's nothing left for us here. He sold us. And when He sold us, he was paid by 14 years of labor from you. And all that he gained from that, he has spent on himself, and there's nothing left. He's devoured it all. And what God has taken from him, he's given to you, Jacob. He's given to our family. And so, it, it, amazingly, Rachel and Leah, that, that just two chapters earlier were, were fighting and bickering with one another, and not happy with one another, and there was strife in the home, oddly now, they are unified in this, and they say together, whatever it is that God tells you to do, do. Do. Do it. We're with you. Rachel and Leah here are making an assessment. 
as Jacob lays out his case for going back to Canaan, they assess what's happening in front of them. On one hand, they have their old life with their father. And they look at that, and it is rotten to the core. There's cheating and deception and abandonment. But on the other hand, there's Jacob, their new husband, leading them and offering them another way, another life, a new life. It's as if he holds out his hands and he asks, will you follow me? And the assessment that Rachel and Leah are making here can be likened to the assessment that an unbeliever is to make when he's presented with the gospel. I'm not saying this passage points to that necessarily, but there's a likeness there between the assessment that Rachel and Leah are making as Jacob lays out this plan and the assessment that an unbeliever must make when the gospel is shared with him or her. Having heard that Christ has come to take on himself the punishment that we deserve, will we stick with our old life that is stained with sin, where we are shackled with sin, where we are deserving of eternal judgment and punishment because of our disobedience and rebellion to God? Will we stick with that old life? Or will we take the hand of Christ and follow him to a new life? If you don't know Christ this morning, my challenge to you is to make an assessment of the gospel. Make an assessment of the gospel. Will you go this way or that way? Will you continue to trust in yourself? Or will you take the hand of Christ, repent of your sin, and trust in Christ alone for your salvation, forgiveness of your sins? To be given the righteousness of Jesus Christ and made justified before a holy God? Will you trust in the finished work of the cross or will you trust in yourself? Will you trust your old life or will you take the hand of Christ and long for the new life? In this narrative, Rachel and Leah figuratively take their husband's hand and agree to go with him back to Canaan. And so now they both conclude, whatever God has said to you, do. This leads us to the fourth and final section of our passage this morning where Jacob secretly steals away, flees Laban, and begins his journey back to Canaan. Look at verses 17 and 18. So Jacob arose and set his sons and his wives on camels. He drove away all his livestock, all his property that he had gained, the livestock in his possession that he had acquired in Paddan Aram to go to the land of Canaan to his father Isaac. And so what does Jacob do? He, he gathers together all that is his. He didn't take anything that wasn't his. He, he gathered together all that was his that he acquired in that land legally and rightfully. And he begins the journey back. And the picture here is that this is a huge, huge train of flocks of sheep and goats and camels. God has provided extravagantly for him. But then we read about Rachel in verse 19. Laban had gone to shear his sheep, which means that he went away for a while. And Rachel stole her father's household gods. Now we're going to talk more about these household gods next week, Lord willing. But essentially these are idols These are idols. And we don't know exactly why Rachel stole them away. Um, Perhaps she's still wrestling with coming out of that polytheistic culture and thinks it's better to trust many gods than just one God. Maybe she's doing this just to spite her father, just to get one last dig at her father. But regardless, the Bible frowns upon this, this is wrong, this is stealing, this is theft, taking something that doesn't belong to you, and, and it, is, it is a portent of trouble to come that we'll see in the second half of, of the chapter next week. It almost gets them all killed. She steals it away. But then there's a word play between verse 19 and verse 20 that's, imp- that's important to note. 
In verse 20, we're told Jacob tricked Laban by not telling him that he intended to flee. Literally, in Hebrew, Jacob tricked Laban. Literally, that should read, Jacob stole the heart of Laban. And your ESV footnote probably mentions that. Jacob stole the heart of Laban. So Rachel stole Laban's idols and Jacob stole Laban's heart, which basically means that he deceived him. It's, it's, the, it's where we get our phrase, he stole away. He robbed him of his chance to stop him and to stop his, his daughters from going away. He stole away. And then verse 21, he fled with all that he had and arose and crossed the Euphrates and set his face toward the hill country of Gilead. And so now the scene is set for next week as Laban will now find out that he's left, will pursue after him with vengeance, and will meet up with him in the hill country outside of Gilead. And there's this massive conflict. And you're going to have to come back next week to find out how that works out. But what do we learn from this part of Genesis 31? What do we learn from this part of the story I've got three application points for you, and then I want to flesh it out. Number one, if we are his, which means if we are his through faith in Christ, if we belong to him through faith in Jesus Christ as our only hope to be rescued from what we deserve, we've we've repented of our sins, we've trusted in Christ, we've become his. If we are his, then he is with us and he is for us, and that's good news. Secondly, if he's for us, and he is, If he's for us, then who can be against us, right? Romans 8.31. If God is for us, who can be against us? Nobody. Nobody. And then thirdly, if he calls us from what is comfortable and safe to what is uncomfortable and scary, then our role is to trust him, to trust him every step of the way. Because we know that his sovereign care and his hand of providence and protection is over us. God had sent Jacob to Haran to find a wife, and now God tells Jacob it's time to pack up and go back to Canaan. God's got big plans for Jacob. He's got big plans for his son, particularly Joseph, that will be, we've already been introduced to him, but his story is going to take over in just a few chapters. God had promised first to his grandfather Abraham, then to his father Isaac, and now to Jacob himself. He promised to make him into a great nation. And that through them, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Through Jacob's line runs the seed of the promise. The promise that there is coming one from the seed of the woman that will one day crush the head of the serpent Defeating forever the curse of sin and death, as was promised from the very beginning. This is God's plan of redemption. And now it's time for Jacob to re-engage with that plan, with that mission. He's been in this furnace of trial and affliction for 14 years. And then uh, subsequently, he, he was there for six more years, through which he became quite wealthy. And he's learned a lot. He's learned a lot about God. He's learned a lot about his promises. He's learned a lot about his faithfulness. But now it's time to go. And so God calls him and reminds him that he's been with him all along. And that he'll continue to be with him as he follows God back to Canaan. God's got big plans for Jacob back in Canaan. But to get him back there, he reminds him of his presence and his protection of him as he leads him back to Canaan. Now consider for a moment, as we can flesh out the application here, consider for a moment the Israelites, recently freed from slavery in Egypt, wandering in the wilderness, hearing the story from Moses. God was likewise calling them to a promised land. But to get there, they would need to trust him. They'd need to obey him. They would need to follow him and rely on his providential protection of them as his chosen people. 
he had big plans for the Israelites once they got back to the promised land. Big plans. But to get them back there, he in part uses this story to remind them of his protection, his guidance, and his sovereign care. Church, God is calling you and I today to follow him as well. To engage with him and his kingdom purposes and his kingdom mission in this world. And this requires that we trust him. This requires that we obey him. This requires that we rely on him and follow him. And that we too rely on his providential protection and care for us, his chosen people in the world. God has big plans for the church. And to keep us walking with him and to keep us faithfully engaging in the mission so those plans are accomplished, he uses stories like this one in Genesis 31 to remind us of his watchful eye over us and his unwavering protection and his perfect and never-ending watchful care and guidance. He promises to never leave us or forsake us and he never has and he never will. A secret service agent is assigned to an individual his charge in order to keep watch over him and protect him. And while they are the very best at what they do, they're not perfect. They are not immune to making errors in judgment or succumbing to the need for sleep. And tragically, sometimes, sometimes the enemy slips through and does harm to the one that they are charged with protecting. And that's where our analogy breaks down. Because the same is not true with our God. His protection cannot be breached. His security detail has no weaknesses. He never slumbers. He never sleeps. No no enemy has ever or will ever break through those lines. Not even death. For even when death comes, resurrection is soon to follow. So let us take his hand. Church, let us step out in faith to what he is calling us to and trust that he is with us, watching over us, even if we can't see him. He's our secret protection, unseen. Let's pray.